Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I, of course, am your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I hope everyone out there is feeling springy, I guess almost summer at this point, getting plenty of sunshine and warmth. My region is in a drought, which is not great for my farm, but I will take the sun and the blue skies. And speaking of this glass half full thinking, you should check out our most recent essay from fellow Michelle Jin, who wrote about how consumers, businesses, and politicians all have a role to play in ridding our shelves of unhealthy products. One more reminder, you can find and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so you never miss a show. We are here every two weeks, so do not miss out. This podcast takes time and resources, and we are so grateful for the support we receive. Today, I'd like to highlight one of our supporters, Rachel's Network, which is a community of women at the intersection of environmental advocacy, philanthropy, and leadership. You can find out more at rachelsnetwork.org. All right, today I am talking to Dr. Reagan Patterson, a Transportation Equity Research Fellow at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. Reagan recently wrote an essay about how black communities need to lead the charge to repair harm from freeways. We talk about her love of math from an early age, how she came to incorporate environmental justice into her engineering research, and her advocacy for transportation reparations. Enjoy. Now I am joined by Reagan Patterson. Reagan, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. How are you? I am excellent. And where are you today? Where are you coming at us from? I am in Washington, D.C. Awesome. Washington, D.C., a far away from northern Michigan where I am. (laughs) It is great to talk to you. And I want to start, uh, as I usually do, way back at the beginning. And I happen to know that you were pretty good at math from a young (laughs) age. And but yet yet. Since then, you've kind of mentioned, you know, institutional barriers to STEM education for underrepresented students. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. So I'm kind of curious what, if any, of these barriers looked like for you as a young Black girl excelling at math. Yeah, so um, there's always, not always, but we often hear of like that time that I found out that I was Black or that your identity was something other. And so for me, it actually, my story kind of focuses around STEM, interestingly. And so in fourth grade, um, I was, I had recently moved to Ohio. And in fourth grade, um, they realized that I was really good at math. And so my mom was hoping for me to be um, bumped up a math level. So even though I was in fourth grade, go into the fifth grade math class. However, the school um, pushed back on that. And so I didn't understand why, but came to learn it was because I was a little black girl. And so I was not supposed to be good at math. And so my mom actually went to the school um, to advocate on behalf of me, her daughter, um, to put me into that higher math class. And so um, that was experience um, at a young age was very eye opening. Um, And so that was something to to see how institutionally the discouragement of Black and other um, underrepresented students in the STEM fields. And so we see this um, in stories of tracking more broadly. Um, My brother even was tracked. And I remember coming um, home. So my family lives in San Diego. And so I was visiting home and um, I saw my brother's um, 
high school schedule. And so, you know, they like do that in advance. What's your plan schedule? And I noticed they had placed him in math classes that would not even allow him to get to an AP math class. And I will say my brother is smarter than me. And um, I was just like, this doesn't make sense. He's a black man. He um, was a varsity athlete. And so it was like, oh, on that level, it made sense. And so I I completely changed the schedule. And um, luckily, um, it did change. But again, having to advocate for my own brother. And I see this again and again with students that I tutor and work with being tracked, for instance, into social justice academies um, or social science academies over um, engineering academies or other science related academies in high schools. Um, and so um, just these familiar stories of being tracked or being discouraged from pursuing um, STEM interests. Yeah, and basically just perpetuating or, or instigating stereotypes, which is which is really ugly. I am curious as a young as a young man, I was really into books and words, and um, math gave me a really hard time. That's why I'm a journalist. Um, but that manifested in wanting to read. I, I would read about baseball, and I would read these books, and that's kind of how my interest grew. I'm wondering when you're that young and you're into math. Um, it's so foreign to me. How did that manifest outside of school? Or was it just kind of strictly at school that you were focused on this? Oh, my interest? Um, so I was definitely a big nerd. Um, and so funny enough, my grandmother uh, is a retired teacher, an English teacher, in fact. And so she would sit me down and say, you can't watch TV until you read this book. Um, <laughs> but then also, when it came to video games, my favorite video game growing up was actually Math Blaster. Um, and so I would sit for hours and hours at my grandmother's house actually playing Math Blaster. And so that is how I think I really developed my love of math. Um, yeah, I, kids today, I don't think anyone's like, oh yeah, that really cool math game. But for me, it really was my my grandma just instilling the importance of education and then also just like a love for math that was um, kind of amplified because of this Math Blaster video game. A classic. <laughs> That's really cool. I, I bet there are examples. I, I don't know of them, but I know there's all kinds of work in, in the AI space and in video games using them as tools of education. And it's it's pretty cool to think that, uh, you know, even a, a couple decades, whatever it is, uh, that, that you were uh, you were doing that, too. It probably looks a lot different now than Math, math Blaster did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I'm like, I'm not that old, but that definitely does age me a little bit. <laughs> Well, and the, the leaps and bounds that video games have taken, you know, it's probably so realistic looking. So skipping ahead a few steps here um, up to you, you went to UCLA for engineering and you've mentioned that two organizations and I want to say their names. So the Center for Excellent and Excellence in Engineering and Diversity and the National Society of Black Engineers, they played a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal role in both support and mentorship. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, how they helped you succeed and what these organizations provided beyond what classes and kind of the traditional academic advisors offered. Yeah, so I owe so much to Seed and Nesby, and so I'm so thankful that you asked this question. Um, and so Seed really provided a sense of belonging. Um, and so freshman year, before even the start of freshman year, Seed actually brings students to campus. 
um, a week before classes start to get introduced to courses and to build community. And so you come in to this large campus, UCLA, this large UC school, already with a sense of community and academic support. And that only continues to grow throughout um, your academic career at UCLA through SEED. Um, academically, you have tutoring services, a dedicated workspace and professional development. Um, however, you also have the TriOrg, which consists of NSBE, as you mentioned, the National Society of Black Engineers, um, SOLES, the Society of Latino Engineers and Scientists, and then ACES, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. And so you're introduced to these groups, um, which really become both academic support and just personal support um, networks. And so that's really the formal structure, but then you have so much more and like they really are people that have your like they have your back, they're in your corner, and they're really helping you navigate. And so for me, for instance, um, after my sophomore year, I wanted to, um, I, I came in UCLA as a civil and environmental engineering major. Um, but after starting to take upper div classes, I was like, this is not what I want to do. Um, and I was freaking out, like, should I even stay in engineering? But being able to go to the seed offices and the seed staff and really talk through this, and then I ended up being a chemical engineering major. Um, also providing letters of recommendation, encouraging me to apply to be student speaker. And so I was the first black woman to be the engineering student commencement speaker. And then also encouraging me to apply to UC Berkeley for graduate school. So actually I was not even considering Berkeley, which is funny enough. And then that happens to be where I went. Um, and so it's just, just having that, knowing that there was a community always there to support me through like personal decisions, academic decisions, professional decisions, um, really lifetime relationships. I still communicate with them now. And so um, just, again, that sense of belonging and community. So I'm both surprised and not surprised when I hear things like what you just sandwiched in there, that you were the first Black woman to give the commencement speech. Was it for the School of Engineering? Is that right? Yes. I, I, that's still, you know, hearing those things still kind of blows my mind, um, but it shouldn't. And, and I'm wondering if you tell me about that. How what was that experience like? And were you were you nervous? Oh my goodness, I was so nervous. And so I was not even considering being commencement speaker. And then again, going into the seat offices, um, talking to Sherry, who is still there, um, and she was like, Reagan, how about you apply to be speaker? And I was like, really? And she was like, Yeah, do it. And so I um, I was like, oh, okay. And so my message was really inspired by the story of my great grandmother. Um, and so having the courage to um, migrate to the North to give her family better opportunities, um, including my grandmother, who actually, again, I mentioned she um, is a retired English teacher. She actually taught my great grandmother how to read and write. And so um, just that, um, the courage to do for others. And so that is something that was the theme of my um, speech, but just very nervous. And again, Seed helped me in this process. Um, and when I was selected, I was excited, but also again, nervous. I surprise people when I say I'm actually very terrified of public speaking, <laughs> even though I do. <laughs> I'm very terrified. Um, and so, but I did have some comfort in the message that I really wanted to share, again, inspired by my family. That is just a very relatable message of, again, doing for others. It does seem that the things that make us both very excited and very nervous are usually the ones where we get done and there's a real sense of fulfillment. 
um, when, yeah. when you feel both of those in advance. So you ultimately stuck with engineering, but in the meantime, it sounded like you did some work with low income, first generation pre-college students and it did some tutoring. And I'm wondering if you could talk about those experiences and why you felt it was important to, in addition to everything else had going on, uh, kind of pay it forward to these younger students. Yeah, so during my time in undergrad, um, through SEED, NSBE, and our triorg, we did a lot of community outreach programming. And so um, bringing students from elementary school through high school to campus to engage in activities to help demystify STEM and encourage students to pursue STEM in college. Um, and so this really um, exposed me to the importance of service and being in service to our communities. Um, whether that's exposing students to academic or professional opportunities or just supporting students in their own academic journeys. And so um, through services like tutoring and mentoring. And so um, this was really instilled through those undergraduate experiences. And so then continuing them throughout graduate school, um, being involved with Upward Bound um, and SMASH, which are two programs that specifically target um, low-income first-generation underrepresented students. And so um, for me, it is, again, being in service to community. And so while I'm here, again, there's a lot around making sure that you have, um, you create opportunities and bring people along with you. Um, also, though, it's really just about support. And so um, a lot of these programs are about supporting students who are specifically interested in engineering. However, some students may not choose engineering. Some students may choose another science field or choose a field completely out of science, but it's making sure that they know, again, they're supported. And so to get through these math courses, these science courses, but also to encourage to pursue any um, interests that they have in academia. And so, um, yeah, so throughout graduate school, um, programs like Project Touchdown at St. Paul's AME Church, or um, I also created the Black Engineering Workshop Series to bring students to campus. And so really just this dedication to creating that space and that support for students. I, if I could go back to my undergraduate career, engaging in the kind of communities, micro communities that you're talking about would be the one thing I would change. I went to Michigan State University, which is another big, large public school, public uh, state school. And it felt like it was just a sea of people and 500 person classrooms. And I think to have that support on the micro level, um, whether it's uh, be because you all have a shared interest or a shared background or uh, whatever it is, I think that's so important. Um, did you ever think that maybe you wanted to do something more education wise instead of engineering? Um, I don't think it's an instead of, but it's an addition to it. So it's um, how can I continue to merge these two interests? And so, um, and so yes, always just making sure to dedicate time to this. Cause for me, it's about making sure that no matter what career we choose, we always make sure to do the work that um, gives back to community. And so, yeah, not, not an or, but an and. <laughs> Right. So before we get into some of the work that you're doing now, uh, I, I'm wondering what is a moment or event or decision up to this point that has shaped your identity? Um, I will say, I don't think I will. It's an 
it's an extended moment, but I will honestly say that graduate school really shaped my identity and being what I will say is a very unapologetic version of myself, which really shapes the work that I do now. Um, in graduate school, one, it is a very taxing experience, I will say. Um, uh, and so being able to navigate that and remain confident in your abilities while navigating um, graduate school is a test and it is a lesson that on the other side has caused me to now move in a way where I don't allow others to really question my abilities and capabilities. Um, and so before graduate school, it's, it's um, you kind of respect these different like hierarchies. Oh, you're the teacher. You must know more than me. Um, and so in graduate school, you bring this, oh, um, with that professor-student relationship, oh, you must know more than me. But graduate school is was really a lesson in particularly experiences of being challenged as a Black woman. My knowledge, whether it's um, microaggressions or whether it was explicit questioning of did I know information or if it was whether, oh, you're interested in these things, would you rather go out of engineering um, because you seem to care about communities of color? Um, and so just questioning my being and belonging in engineering um, throughout graduate school has really now shaped me um, since I was able to successfully get through and again, be the first black woman to get a PhD in environmental engineering. And so now it's, you know, I made it through that and I'm not going to allow anyone to question me as a Black woman in engineering. And so that really kind of guides my work now where I ask what I ask and I <laughs> and I kind of hold stances that I articulate and I'm willing to share, um, again, unapologetically. How wild is, just to think that the first question I asked you was people questioning your uh, your abilities in math and whether you should move up and then fast forward to the highest, very highest levels of education and that same institutional um, racism really persisted, um, which I think speaks. But, but I'm glad you came out the other side. Um, and, and it's a nice segue to talk to your talk about your work now and a little bit about your dissertation work. Um, so now you're focusing a lot on transportation, environmental injustice, air pollution. Can you talk a little bit about your dissertation research on um, diesel pollution controls in California and how it highlighted this link between historical racial discrimination and our current transportation policies? Yeah, so the lab that I was in focuses on engine controls. And my interest going into graduate school is really focused on environmental justice. So it was about how can I kind of um, pair these two things to craft my dissertation. And so for my work, I ended up looking at the impact of transportation policies, including um, diesel engine controls on environmental justice outcomes. And so, um, for instance, looking at East Oakland um, and the impact of the accelerated adoption of these emission control technologies, which reduce um, diesel emissions on um, exposures in um, East Oakland neighborhoods, the flatlands, as compared to um, the Oakland Hills. And so in doing this work, 
um, from an engineering standpoint, you get emission reductions from these control technologies. And we're happy because emission reductions will benefit everybody. But by focusing really intentionally um, with a justice lens, it requires us to also ask place-based questions. So why are all the trucks going through particular communities, in this case, the flatlands, um, in the first place? Um, why are all the highways near predominantly Black and brown neighborhoods? Um, for another study I did, why are port communities predominantly Black and brown um, communities? And so getting to the why. And so while my research did look, um, did show emissions reductions, um, this research started to kind started to illuminate for me coming from this like technical engineering background and not um, having that historical um, knowledge. So it was through this research that I started to ask those, again, place-based and be exposed to those place-based um, reasons and discriminatory policies that led to the environmental injustices that I was in studying. And so what does that look like practically? So you come in with, uh, you mentioned chemical and en engineering. So that's a, as you said, kind of this very specific kind of, you know, lab work or whatever that looks like. Does it, does it include kind of an interdisciplinary approach where you're inviting in social scientists and maybe anthropologists or what does that look like to try to broaden your perspective? So the research is more all encompassing. Yeah. So for my uh, dissertation, it was air quality modeling. And so modeling the impacts of these policies, such as again, controls or another project freeway route um, routing on exposures. And so that is um, the technical methodology. And so um, within this work, I have opportunities to engage with um, social science literature to inform like discussions, but it wasn't explicitly incorporated into the work. And so um, that is, that is uh, why I, for um, graduate school, I then kind of got on projects outside of my dissertation that kind of allowed me or um, exposed me to social scientists, urban planners, um, environmental scientists. And so that was more of the interdisciplinary experiences. Um, and then later going to do a postdoc at the University of Michigan to, again, do a deeper dive of these um, historical um, policies. But within the engineering dissertation itself, it was informed by other disciplines, but not explicitly um, um, in collaboration with outside disciplines. So we're at this time in our country, as we talk right now, there's a infrastructure bills kind of on the table with the new Biden administration. COVID has put this real dent in, in, in transportation, subways and buses. People are scared. Uh, electrifying vehicles is all over the place. So I'm wondering from your perspective, what are some transportation changes, whether cultural or policy oriented, that you'd like to see push us toward um, environmental justice? Yeah, so um, I'd like to see a few changes, but they're all under this umbrella of transportation reparations. Um, and for me, what that means is fare-free, police-free public transit that is accessible. Um, and that also means freeway teardown projects. And so uh, current the current climate and infrastructure model that you just mentioned is this focus on electric vehicles. Um, and so from my perspective, though, this continual um, uh, 
infrastructure planning around single occupancy cars relies on the same roadway infrastructure. It's just upgraded to be electrified. And to me, this does not get, this does not really enable transportation equity. Um, for instance, there was an article recently about North Houston, which is, um, and due to these auto-dependent transportation systems that continue to rely on this roadway infrastructure, you continue to see the displacement. So in North Houston, they want to expand the freeway, um, which we typically think of transport highway construction historically displacing people, but it continues today. And so if our focus continues to be on, oh, now we just go from um, internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, you still rely again on the same roadway infrastructure, which will perpetuate transportation inequities. And so how do we create a model that instead shifts to public transit, specifically fare free and police free public transit because of the racial implications of um, fares and as well as policing on public transit? If the answer is no, that's fine. But I have to ask. So I, um, I'm from the city, but now I live in a very rural area. And I'm wondering, so it's just a lot different when I think about where I live. Um, I live where I-75 ends, as far north as you can go up to Canada. And um, grew up inside, you know, by I-75 in Detroit. So um, kind of seen the, the span of it in this state. And I'm wondering if, if you or colleagues, research you've seen has thought about kind of rural transportation and ways we can have equity on the rural level where maybe public transit and subways just aren't a thing or possible. Yes. And so expanding um, accessibility for rural communities is definitely a part of this conversation. And I definitely appreciate you highlighting that with this question. Um, and so one thing that is in conversation is that, oh, what if it doesn't make sense to build public transit infrastructure in rural communities? And so then the question is, okay, so how can we expand things like shuttle services? Because people still need to get to essential services such as hospitals, grocery stores, um, employment centers. And so what would that look like? Um, car dependency, um, car dependency and the continual or perpetuation of car dependency contributes to so many um, inequities along race, class, and gender lines. And so how do we therefore make it so that communities in rural areas also do not have to rely on a car, um, especially because already um, it has not been sufficient in providing transportation access for rural communities. So again, what would van pool services look like? What would these shuttle services look like? Um, and other innovative solutions that do not rely on highways. And of course, last year in the wake of um, police murders, uh, for lack of a better word, there was um, we, we saw Black Lives Matter and other movements kind of have a renewed um, importance in our society that's maintained. And, and a lot of these organizations have been drawing parallels between that movement and economic justice and climate justice. And I'm wondering if you see that spreading into transportation equity and transportation justice. Yes. Um, for instance, so I love this question. Um because this actually guides a lot of my current interest in um, work. And so with this summer, you really are starting to see this explicit link being made between state-sanctioned violence and transportation equity. Um, um, and this is really because, as you mentioned, with policing and violence, transportation is the most common police-initiated contact. And due to over-policing of Black communities and Black bodies, Black folks are disproportionately killed by police. And so they're the people that we know, such as Oscar Grant, um, who was featured his story was part of the movie Fruitvale Station, 
as well as folks like Philando um, Castile, Sandra Bland, but there's many we don't know. Um, and so with the calls for divestment and abolition, um, as well as community investments, part of those calls for community part of the community investments are calls for free and accessible transit. Um, you have the Movement for Black Lives Breathe Act. You have Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's Freedom to Move Act. And so again, linking divestment to free and accessible transit. Um, additionally, you have um, the Movement for Black Lives call for climate reparations. Um, and so Black communities are hit first and worst. Um, and so in an interview, Stacey Abrams recently even mentioned that transportation is tied to um, folks' ability to evacuate and return to their cities. And so when you have these underfunded and divested public transit systems, um, things that um, stats such as Black people being more, more unlikely to own cars, this really impacts these climate um, injustices. And then lastly, something that also really excites me is the movement for Black Lives Red, Black, and Green New Deal, which is connecting the struggle for Black liberation and climate justice. And so trying to create a Black vision for climate justice and equitable transportation systems are a um, critical part of that. And just because I'm always thinking about bicycles, I have to mention that uh, bicycling too, uh, communities of color are more likely to get tickets on their bike. Uh, this, these are stats. And I believe it's Black Girls Do Ride Bikes is an organization that's doing work on this. But there's all kinds of uh, work being done on the cycling side of things too, which uh, I'm kind of selfishly very interested in because I'm, I'm a big cyclist. So you're obviously here at Agents of Change because on some level you value um, communication and outreach and getting your research and your thoughts and ideas um, to communities that may not see them in academic journals. So I'm wondering what role kind of community outreach and communication has played in your research so far and moving forward, what role you want it to play? Yeah, so during graduate school, it was my community engagement that really informed the questions that I asked in my dissertation because I really want my work to be something that can translate um, into on the ground actions or something that or research that is usable by grassroots um, organizers. And so through graduate school, it was my outside work. And so um, internships or community engaged work that would inform my inside ac um, academic work. And so now having the opportunity where I currently am the Transportation Equity Research Fellow at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, it is how can my work reach, um, reach a wide audience? And so making sure that my work is understandable or relatable for um, someone who randomly picks it up to um, policymakers, to academics. And so making sure that this that the work is um, is legible to a wide audience and can contribute to um, transportation equity. And then in the future, I'm hoping to continue this policy work to really say, how can my research translate into policy um, through policy analysis? And also though, making sure that in creating um, these research questions that it's really informed and led by community. And so, um, so right now, a lot of my work is policy questions that I lead through the CBCF, but making, but in the future, having questions and guiding policy through a community engaged process is something that I'm very interested in doing. Again, informed by experiences I had in, in graduate school, but being even more intentional about doing so um, in the future. 
So from childhood to now, you've lived in a bunch of different places for graduate school and so on and so forth. I'm wondering, being in D.C., being in the hornet's nest of <laughs> of policymaking and very important people or people who think they're very important, what is it like? Do you like it there? you like working there? I do. Um, I, I have, I, it was always my goal to get to DC. And so I'm originally from Maryland. And so it's kind of, I call it my home going, um, being here in DC, but I always knew I wanted to engage in policy. I always loved when I would visit for conferences, like the hustle and bustle where people always knew they had to get somewhere, they had to do something. And so kind of immersing myself in this kind of, um, space for a bit and it just to experience it. And so I, I really love it. Um, I'm clearly here to push an agenda around transportation equity. Folks in D.C. are all, a lot of folks in D.C. are here to push their various agendas. And so um, just kind of navigating that and see that how that operates and where people have um, synergies in their work and what kind of collaborations and partnerships across so many different arenas. Again, you have the policy of the nonprofits. Um, and so I, it's a fun, great place. I, I feel like I thrive in these kind of spaces of just like move, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. <laughs> so I'm having a good time. I've agreed with pretty much everything you've said in this podcast up to loving the hustle and bustle. And then we just we just split and parted ways. I, when I talk to my journalist friends who are in D.C. Uh, who are working, again, it's, it's fast paced and, and writing about policy. And then I think about um, my life in a very rural area, I, I feel very fortunate. But yeah, everybody thrives in, under different circumstances. So that's very cool. Reagan, we have reached the end and I'm, I've had so much fun. I have one last question for you. And that is, what is the last book you read for fun? So the last book I read was The Yellow House. Um, I'm currently reading I'm Still Here. And tell me about The Yellow House. So The Yellow House is a book about a family in New Orleans. And so it's an interracial intergenerational story of a Black family um, and just the the impact of place on the family experience and the impact of, there's a climate narrative within it, an environmental justice narrative within it, um, because this family was impacted by Hurricane Katrina, um, talking about the impact of highways uh, that have, that these children would have to cross to get to school. Um, but yes, just the an intergenerational Black experience in New Orleans. Excellent. Well, Reagan, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really good time. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that is all for this week, folks. How about Reagan? She is so fun to talk to. And if you haven't read her essay on transportation and harm from highways yet, please do. It is so timely as the U.S. looks to overhaul its infrastructure. You can find that essay at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And while you're there, click the big orange donate button if you like what we are doing. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Aaron Gomez. We are a small team, and I could not do it without their help. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. 
We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Ms. Beth Dauda, a PhD candidate at Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. Have a great week, folks.